Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study Podcast. You know, when I was growing up, I was not raised in a Christian home. Like many homes today, my parents rarely went to church, and really, there was no religious instruction in the house. Ironically then, when I was seven years old and my brother was eight, our parents suddenly enrolled us into Catholic school for a year. I'm not sure if it was for the religious training or to put us in an environment of stricter discipline. I'm pretty sure it was for the discipline. After that year of attending Catholic school, our parents put us back into public school where we remained. Once again, I'm not sure why they pulled us out after just one year. I don't know if it was the cost or because my brother and I had discipline challenges with the nuns at the school. Once again, it was probably both. Either way, my brother and I were thrilled to get out of there. I'm sure there are many kind-hearted nuns out there wanting to serve God, but the nun I had, as they say in the South, was meaner than a two-headed snake. In the years afterwards, I would refer to her as Attila the Nun. During our one-year stint in Catholic school, my brother went through his ceremony of First Communion. I'm sure he received instructions and explanation beforehand, but the bottom line is that neither of us were believers at that time. In fact, I didn't even trust Christ for salvation until I was 25, and my brother is still unsaved to this day. But communion then is for believers, and while a child can certainly understand the gospel and be saved at a young age, neither of us were saved. Someone's first communion then should take place after that person has come to saving faith in Christ. Same is true with water baptism. As we return now to the 14th chapter of Mark, we come to the gospel account of Jesus instituting the practice or the observance of communion, and it truly was the first communion, which is the title of this message. As we'll see here momentarily in this passage, this took place while Jesus and the disciples were finishing their Passover meal. So what is the meaning of communion, and why did Jesus choose to institute it at this moment, just before his death on the cross? 2,000 years later, why do Christians continue to observe communion? How often should believers celebrate it? Well, let's read our verses together in Mark 14, and then we can begin to tackle those questions and others along with it. Again, we're in Mark 14, and we're picking up now in verse 12. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? 
Another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And so as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took up the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. By way of quick review, this chapter had opened up with the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. We examined those verses in our last podcast message. But those leaders were fearful of the large crowds, you know, so many people flooding into Jerusalem for Passover. So they decided they should wait until after the week-long celebration was finished. However, God's timetable was different, and God had ordained that Jesus would die as the Passover lamb on that Passover Friday. In the meantime, Judas Iscariot had met with the same leaders and cut a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So while everyone was preparing to celebrate the Passover meal, Jesus was preparing to die as the Passover lamb. Here now in these verses, we come to that night commonly referred to as the Last Supper when Jesus instituted his first communion. Here in verse 12, we come to Thursday evening of Passion Week and to the beginning of the eight-day celebration of Passover followed by the Week of Unleavened Bread. The Jewish day goes from sunset to sunset, unlike ours, which is viewed more as beginning in the morning or at sunrise. So at sunset on Thursday night, Passover began, and then it would continue until sunset on Friday. It's very helpful to know that according to the Jewish historian Josephus, as well as the writings that are in the Jewish Mishnah, the Passover meal was eaten at two different times. If you keep this in mind, it actually clears up a few gospel passages that seem to be confusing. And so what we mean by that is that the northern Jews in the Galilee region typically ate their Passover meal after sunset on Thursday night, while the southern Jews, you know, in Jerusalem, Judea, they would typically eat their Passover meal before sunset on Friday. Even so, all the Jews, again, were eating Passover meal on the same day, because as we noted, the Jewish day ran from sunset to sunset. But this helps us to understand how Jesus and his disciples, who were all Galilean Jews except for Judas Iscariot, would eat their meal on Thursday night, which then allowed Jesus to die on Friday as the Passover lamb, while the Jerusalem Jews were eating their Passover meal on Friday. The Passover celebration, followed by the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, was an important yearly observance for the Jewish people to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Back in the Exodus story, you might recall or know that a lamb was killed and roasted by each family, while the lamb's blood was applied to the doorposts of their homes. At midnight, at God's appointed time, the angel of death then passed over the Jewish homes where the blood had been applied. Along with the roasted lamb that they ate, the Hebrews also prepared flatbread but without leaven, and it lasted for that week. 
They prepared and ate their meal in haste, and there just wasn't enough time to add yeast to the bread dough and wait for it to rise before baking. Therefore, they ate unleavened bread. And along with Passover, then you have the celebration or feast of unleavened bread. Well, here now in our story, 1,500 years later, and on the eve of Christ's death on the cross, Jesus and his disciples are preparing for their Passover meal. But Jesus has something more in mind, transforming the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. Here in verse 12, his disciples ask Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare for the Passover meal? Now, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Judas had already met with the religious leaders and agreed to help them arrest Jesus a few days earlier. Jesus knew this, so if he revealed the location of the Passover meal to all the disciples, Judas would have probably seen it as the perfect time and opportunity to have the leaders come and arrest Jesus. But it still wasn't quite the hour for Jesus to be arrested, which would be later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this secrecy on the part of Jesus was to keep Judas from moving forward until the timing of God's will was just right. Notice then how Jesus handles this in verse 13. He sends two of his disciples out with specific instructions. According to Luke 22.8, those two disciples were Peter and John. Therefore, the other ten disciples, including Judas, didn't know where the Passover meal was going to take place. Jesus sent Peter and John into Jerusalem and instructed them to look for a man carrying a water pitcher and then to follow him. A man carrying a water pitcher was not normal since women usually performed this task in that culture. Therefore, locating that man wasn't difficult. And in verse 14, Peter and John, when they found him, followed him to a particular home and they asked the homeowner about a guest room for the Passover meal. The homeowner knew Jesus since the disciples delivered the request to him from the teacher and he knew who that was. In fact, based on verse 15, Jesus and that homeowner evidently had already made the arrangement. So when Peter and John arrived, they were shown the upstairs room, which was already furnished and prepared. Now, just again, to be clear, this was the Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were going to eat. It was also called the Last Supper since Jesus was arrested that same night and crucified the next morning. So it was also the meal that Jesus would transform into the First Communion. Before celebrating Passover and instituting communion, Jesus still had some final lessons and instructions for his disciples there in that upper room. In fact, if you go to John's Gospel, uh, several chapters are dedicated to that particular teaching and instruction, and that passage is oftentimes referred to as the upper room discourse. That time of instruction included Jesus washing the disciples' feet Uh, as a lesson on humility, along with his teachings on many other subjects. Finally then, during the meal, there was still one piece of business Jesus needed to take care of before instituting communion. And you know what that was? Getting rid of Judas. As the group sat there for the Passover meal, Jesus announced to them in verse 18 that one of them was going to betray him. That announcement stunned all the disciples, except Judas, who knew that Jesus was talking about him. Judas had done a masterful job of fooling all the other disciples who never suspected his treachery. Meanwhile, Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to repent and to receive forgiveness. Don't forget, Jesus even washed the feet of Judas that night. 
Ironically, in the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, we oftentimes focus on how Peter was protesting. Remember that? Didn't want Jesus washing his feet because he felt it was below and beneath Jesus to do that. But even more startling is how Judas quietly allowed Jesus to wash his feet, even though he was about to betray the Lord. It's just another indication of his cold and callous heart. Judas was never saved because he never repented of his sins and never believed in Jesus for salvation. One by one then, in response to that stunning announcement by Jesus that one of the twelve was going to betray him, they all took turns somberly asking Jesus if it was them. According to Matthew 26 and the parallel passage, each of the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, is it I? But in stark contrast, Judas asked him, Rabbi, is it me? All the disciples called Jesus Lord, except for Judas, who called him Rabbi. In fact, search the Gospels and you will see that Judas never called Jesus Lord because Judas was never saved. Jesus quietly exposed Judas as the betrayer, but the other disciples didn't seem to catch it since they didn't know that it was Judas until the actual moment of the betrayal in Gethsemane. The Gospels reveal that Jesus identified his betrayer as the one who would dip his hand with bread into the same dish of olive oil with Jesus, but even then the disciples didn't catch it. Now when we combine all the Gospel information and piece together the chronology of events in the upper room, we discover that Judas left the room soon after Jesus spoke of betrayal. In fact, you might remember Jesus said to Judas, what you are about to do, do quickly, referring to his treachery. But once again, while the other disciples heard it, they didn't catch it, and they didn't see what was going on. They simply thought, well, Jesus was sending Judas out on an errand, maybe to help the poor or something. After Judas left the room, then Jesus instituted communion. So I'd I'd like you to catch this, please. Just as all the leaven was removed from the house of the Hebrews during Passover, Jesus removed the leaven of Judas from the house before he instituted communion. Now I would like to spend the remainder of our time on the subject of communion because it's, it's very important to us as believers. Again, we probably most commonly in evangelical churches refer to it as communion, but also we call it the Lord's Table and the Lord's Supper. All of those are New Testament terms. Some even call it the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek and simply means to give thanks. The institution of communion is described in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's implied in John's Gospel, but then it's also recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, Paul was not there in the upper room. In fact, he wasn't even saved until some time later. But by divine revelation, God had revealed the intimate facts of that first communion to Paul. So then, let me share with you, if I may, 10 biblical facts about communion And hey, if you're able, you might want to write them down for future consideration. Number one, talking about communion, it was instituted by Jesus. We saw that here in the passage. It was Jesus himself during the Passover meal who took two of the common elements from the table, bread and wine, and then incorporated those elements into the elements of communion. He not only instituted communion, notice that Jesus participated in it with his disciples, And Jesus did the same with our other 
Christian ordinance of water baptism. He not only gave us the command to be water baptized in Matthew 28, but Jesus was also baptized himself in the Jordan River. Secondly, when we talk about communion, we want to note that it represents the new covenant. Now, this is something very important that I don't want you to miss as far as Jesus was concerned. This was intended to be the final Passover celebration as well as the first communion. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. This was intended to be the last Passover celebration as well as the first communion. The Passover not only commemorated what had happened 1,500 years earlier in Egypt, it was pointing forward to the coming Passover Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus took two elements from the old ceremony of the Passover meal, the bread and the wine, and turned them into the new covenant of his body and blood in communion. Passover then was transformed into communion and into part of the new covenant. Therefore, this was not intended to be an addition to the Passover, but rather to replace it and even transform it into a new covenant observance. That's because the Old Testament was closing and the New Testament was beginning, and Jesus would ratify the new covenant with his death on the cross the very next day. So today, unsaved Jews continue to observe Passover, and it reflects their rejection of Jesus as well as their rejection of the New Testament. If they were saved, and there are many Jews that are, they would be observing communion to celebrate their salvation rather than Passover. When Jesus died on the cross the next day, the veil in the temple, remember, was supernaturally torn by God. Jesus became our mediator and eternal high priest. His death was the final sacrifice for sins, the end of the Old Testament animal sacrificial system, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Number three, then, the elements of communion are symbolic. Now, if you don't have any background in Catholicism, hey, I got one year under my belt, right? I told you about that. If you don't have any background in Catholicism, then you might be thinking to yourself that this point is pretty obvious, that the elements are symbolic. Of course they're symbolic. It's not literally the blood and body of Jesus, and you would be right. However, the Roman Catholic teaching is that a miracle takes place in every Catholic Mass with communion, whereby the elements supernaturally become the actual body and blood of Jesus. The Roman Catholic teaching of this is called transubstantiation. Now, in the moments when the Catholic priest blesses each element, they believe that they are becoming the literal body and blood of Jesus according to their doctrine. As you might recognize, there are several biblical problems with the teaching of transubstantiation. For one, while the spirit of Jesus is omnipresent as God, in other words, Jesus is everywhere at once, his physical body remains in heaven. He's seated on the throne above. The physical body of Jesus is not omnipresent, so it's not there in those Catholic ser uh, services. Secondly, Jesus was using a simple, straightforward illustration, and when he said to the disciples, this is my body and this is my blood, he was in the act of handing them bread and wine to symbolize that. Remember, Jesus was still in his body when he handed the bread to them and said, this is my body. The blood was still flowing in his veins when he said, this is my blood. Clearly then, his body and blood were separate from what those elements were representing. Thirdly, 
Jews are strictly forbidden from drinking blood or from eating meat with blood in it. But that would be exactly what Jesus would be asking them to do if transubstantiation was valid. Fourthly, and the most important, those who treat the elements as being the actual body and blood of Christ, well, then every time they partake of communion, they're re-sacrificing and re-offering Jesus for their sins repeatedly. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus died once and for all for our sins on the cross at Calvary. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to continually offer up animal sacrifices, but on the cross, our high priest Jesus declared, it is finished. And so now when we eat the bread, it's still the bread. And when we drink the cup, it's still the juice. It's always been that way. They're very common elements, but what they symbolize is very uncommon, the body and blood of Christ. Let me also mention that the bread is always served first in communion services, and then the cup comes after that. Not only is that the order given by Jesus in the upper room, it symbolizes the fact that the body of Jesus was first beaten, and then he was crucified on the cross where his blood was shed for our sins. Let me also make a a, a comment or two on the debate of whether the communion cup should contain actual wine or juice. Now, maybe you didn't know this was a debate and, you know, you're in a church and everything's fine. There's no issue with that. But trust me, there are some uh, churches that actually argue over this. Some people strongly believe that wine should be served in the communion cup because Jesus used wine in the upper room. I understand that to a certain degree, but that can be a potential problem for people who are recovering alcoholics and for believers who have made a commitment and chosen to abstain completely from alcohol. As a result, most churches choose to use grape juice instead. And listen, while we're talking about it, we need to be reminded that wine comes from grapes, which are allowed to ferment longer in order to become alcohol, while grape juice comes from, hello, grapes, but it's simply unfermented. So in the end, it's very much the same substance. And by using grape juice, I think it's a wiser option. Well, number four, when we talk about communion, the purpose is remembrance. That statement from Jesus, do this in remembrance of me, is not recorded here in Mark, but it is in Luke's gospel. It's also highlighted twice by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. So the elements are symbolic and they serve as a memorial and reminder of his great sacrifice for our sins. Communion invites us to look back to the cross and to remember what Jesus did to achieve our salvation. In fact, it's worth noting that the Greek word for remembrance means so much more than just in memory of. This word carries the idea of a present participation in a past event. So the Lord's table then is both a memorial and a participation. And here's an interesting paradox about our faith. God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and he promises to remember them no more, Psalm 103. But at the same time, Jesus instructs us to remember his sacrifice and death on the cross, the very acts which he provided that forgiveness and removal of our sin. Number five, communion is ongoing. As believers, we have two ordinances or sacraments uh, in the church, water baptism and communion. Water baptism is a public testimony of our salvation. Communion is a remembrance and memorial to the sacrifice of Christ for our salvation. 
A significant difference between the two is that our baptism is a one-time event, while communion is an ongoing observance. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul writes of communion, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So every time the church has a communion service, it's declaring the Lord's death, proclaiming what Jesus did for us. Which brings us to another topic of debate. How often should churches and believers partake of communion? Well, the New Testament doesn't give us a specific answer to that question. Obviously, communion is special and important to us as believers. However, communion frequency is not quite as important as communion attitude. In other words, we don't read of any New Testament believers ever being rebuked for how often they took communion, but the Corinthian believers were certainly rebuked by Paul for their selfish and sinful attitude leading up to communion there in 1 Corinthians 11. In my opinion, communion should be taken regularly because of what it represents. And of course, now you want to know what I mean by regularly, don't you? I believe that observing communion too often could potentially make it repetitive and routine. But too seldom seems to miss the point of Paul's words, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So how often should we take communion? Mm, I guess somewhere between too often and too seldom. I'm not going to say anything beyond that because the New Testament doesn't say anything beyond that. Number six, when it comes to communion, it's not optional. Here in verse 23, when Jesus passed the cup to his disciples, they all drank from it. Jesus instructs us all as believers to partake of communion. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because... And I know this from firsthand experience in talking to people. Sometimes Christians who have been failing and falling short in their faith feel guilty and unworthy to partake of communion. But let me just say, you never were worthy, you never will be worthy. Our righteousness comes from Christ alone. The purpose of communion is to reflect and remember what Christ did for us in bringing us salvation through the cross. Therefore, all believers should partake of communion. Instead, what Paul actually writes is that we're not to partake of communion in an unworthy manner, which now leads us to our seventh point, communion carries a serious warning. Back to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine themselves and so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, which is a metaphor for death. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So what does that mean to partake of communion in an unworthy manner? Well, I think the worst way that a believer can do that is by willfully continuing in an ongoing habitual sin with no intention of repenting, and then you come to the communion table as if everything is hunky-dory. Those elements represent the body and blood of Christ dying for our sins, so that unrepentant attitude makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Paul warns that the consequences of this bring sickness, weakness, and in some cases, physical death. Let me also share that I've been in far too many churches where communion was served, but with no explanation. (laughs) 
That is spiritually irresponsible and dangerous. Church leaders have a duty, like Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, to remind people what communion is about, why we do it, and then to exhort believers to take enough time to examine their hearts beforehand in order to deal with any sin. Which then leads us to our next point. Number eight, communion forces us to deal with our sins. Now, I was watching a great Q&A session uh, just yesterday, actually, with a uh, a handful of spiritual leaders. There was a video that was on YouTube, and one of the panelists, Dr. Steve Lawson, was answering the question. Somebody asked, why are believers so cavalier and casual about their sins? They commit a sin, and it seems like they're desensitized to it. They don't seem to care. So Dr. Lawson, in answering that question, pointed out, well, the more obvious importance of they're not spending regular time in the Word of God in prayer, fellowship of church attendance, and they're becoming desensitized. But then he also pointed out, I think a less obvious point, the importance of regular times of communion, because when we come to the communion table, it should force us as believers to examine our hearts and to invite Christ to reveal the sins that we need to repent of. Well, I thought that was a great point, and so I made it my eighth point here in this message. Now, number nine, communion reminds us of the cost of our salvation. As we talk about the body and blood of Jesus, we talk about his suffering and death and what Christ did for us, it reminds us of God's great love for us, as well as how helpless and hopeless we were as sinners without Christ. The only way God could forgive our sin and grant us eternal life in heaven was to sacrifice his sinless son on our behalf. So each and every time that we go to the communion table, it's a time that reminds us of what it costs for God to provide our salvation. Well, number 10, communion carries a future promise. That promise was recorded here in verse 25 when Jesus told the disciples, Assuredly, or truly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This strongly indicates that after his second coming, when Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom here on earth, communion will continue to be observed among God's people. But wait and listen to this. In Ezekiel 45, we read that in the millennial kingdom, Passover will also be observed. You're, you're probably thinking, really? Why? Well, here's the difference. Passover in the millennial kingdom will not be a memorial to the Exodus. It will be a memorial to the cross when Jesus became our Passover lamb. Remember, the deeper meaning of Passover is Jesus and the cross. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. And so more than freedom from slavery in Egypt, it's about freedom from slavery to sin. It's not so much about the old covenant, so much more about the new covenant. And so we say to the Lord, thank you, Jesus, in your name, amen. <music> 